why do bad things happen to good people? It's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, not a day goes by that I don't read an article or see a story somewhere around the world of something happening that's unjust, unfair, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, you would think that if someone is trying to do good, that everything would be okay with them. But that's not the case. I mean, every single day we see people who are good, well-intentioned, hardworking, loving, kind, and bad things happen to them. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Today we're continuing our series on 1 Peter. We've entitled it Aliens, How to Survive in a Hostile World. And the reason we've called it Aliens is because twice in this book, Peter calls those of us who are followers of Jesus aliens. We're strangers in this land. This world is not our home. This is not where God intended us to live forever. And so we need to be very careful not to get too comfortable down here to become too complacent in this world because the world as we know it today is not where we're going to spend eternity. But he also tells us that the world in which we live is hostile to what we believe. The world in which we live does not understand who we are. And so if we're going to survive in a hostile world, there are some things that we need to do. And, and that's what Peter talks about in, in this letter that we call First Peter. The first thing he tells us that we need to do is remember who we are. If we're going to survive in this hostile world, we've got to constantly remember who we are. And Peter tells us that we are chosen by God. We have been born into his family. And because of that, we have a priceless inheritance awaiting us in eternity. We have been chosen by God. Let that sink in. God, the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, chose you to be a part of his family. Through the blood of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, you have been birthed into his family. And because you are a part of his family, you have an inheritance waiting for you. Remember who you are. The second thing that Peter tells us is that we need to live with the future in mind. And Peter tells us about two future events that are going to affect each and every one of us. The first one is the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back and is revealed in all of his glory, the Bible tells us that even those who have pierced him will see him. Understand, Jesus is coming back. And what a day that is going to be. But Peter tells us about another event that's going to take place, and that is the judgment of God. We are told over and over in God's word that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Both the believer and the unbeliever will one day stand before God and give an account of the decisions and the choices they have made. And so in light of these two future events, Jesus is coming back and the judgment of God is something that we will all stand before. Each and every one of us should live a certain way. And Peter tells us that we should live as obedient children. We're children of God, and we need to live as obedient children. We need to live in reverent fear. We need to fear God, not just honor him and respect him, 
but we need to recognize he is the all-powerful, almighty God. We need to have a sincere love for one another, sincere love, real, genuine, heartfelt, put into action. And then we need to crave the pure milk of the Word of God. We need to long for the Word of God, get in to the Word of God. So we need to live with the future in mind. The third thing that Peter tells us is we need to get connected to a spiritual family. Now, Peter begins by telling us Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone upon which we build our lives. He is the cornerstone upon which we build our church. And everything rests upon Jesus. Jesus is the center of all things. Therefore, he is to receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. But Peter not only tells us that that Jesus is the cornerstone, he tells us that each and every one of us who have been born into God's family are stones in the temple that God is building. Each and every one of us who have given our hearts and our lives to Jesus are stones in this temple, in this family, in this church that God is building. And we need one another. We cannot survive without each other. And if you are a part of the family of God and you aren't connected to a local church, then you are causing that local church to miss something that it desperately needs. The author of Hebrews said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are doing instead. Come together to encourage one another because the day is quickly approaching. The day that is referring to is the second coming of Christ. Because Jesus is coming back, each and every one of us need to get connected to a local church. That's vital. Whether you're here in person or whether you're watching online, you need to make sure that you understand connecting to a local church isn't something that you just do if it's convenient. It's something that you make a priority in your life. Now, last week, Will Snipes taught us the truth that that we desperately need if we're going to survive in this hostile world. And that is, we have to learn the discipline of submission. And understand, discipline is a submission that we learn, that we put into practice. Peter tells us to submit to every human authority for the Lord's sake. We submit to the authorities that are in our land because God has put those authorities in place. And when we submit to those authorities... We're bringing honor and glory to God. Now, Will told us last week that the example for submission is Jesus. Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal with the Father, and yet he submitted to the Father's will so that each and every one of us could be forgiven and experience God's grace. And if you and I are going to be able to survive in this hostile world, we need to understand what biblical submission looks like. But today, I want us to talk about something that's, that's really kind of difficult for us to talk about because no one wants to do it. And that is, if we're going to survive in this hostile world, we need to expect suffering. We need to understand that suffering is going to be a part of our lives. Now, suffering comes for a variety of reasons. You need to understand that if you live in this world, you will face suffering from a variety of of directions. First of all, you're going to face suffering because it's common to all men. That's natural suffering. 
This is the result of living in a fallen world. Things go wrong. Our bodies get sick. They wear out. They die. Natural disasters take place that devastate people and places. The economy collapses and, and the places that we work shut down and we lose money. Unfortunately, that is a part of living in a fallen world. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you love Jesus or you don't even know who Jesus is. If you live in this world, one day you will face death. One day you will get sick. If you live in this fallen world, either you or someone you love most likely is going to be affected by a natural disaster. If you live long enough in this world, you will discover that your money can come and your money can go. Those things happen. There is natural suffering. And then there is suffering that we face because of decisions we make or other people make. You see, the Bible makes it clear that there are consequences to our choices. We reap what we sow. We don't handle our money wisely and we end up in poverty. We're unfaithful to our spouse and we could lose our family. We abuse alcohol or drugs and we can lose our license, our health, or, or even more. You see, there are consequences to the decisions we make. And sometimes we experience the consequences of decisions we make that are bad. There are other times that we experience the consequences of decisions other people make that are bad. And we're the collateral damage of that. And so there's natural suffering that we all face because we live in a fallen world. There is suffering that is the direct result of poor decisions that have been made by us or by others. But then there is suffering because we follow Christ. You see, sometimes we suffer just because we're a Christian. Now, Peter begins this section in verse 13 with a question. Notice what he says. He said, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, that's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, that seems logical. That makes sense. I mean, who would want to harm you if your desire is to do good, if your desire is to do right? I mean, you would think that if you treat people fairly, if you live a life of integrity, if you do right, then no harm will come your way. And there are times that that takes place. There are times that you treat people right, you do the right thing, and because of that, nothing bad happens to you. But we all know that bad things do happen to good people, and sometimes the bad things happen because they are good people. You need to understand that today. Bad things not only happen to good people... But bad things happen to people at times because they are good. And that's what Peter is talking about here. He's talking about suffering when we do what is right. We have stood up. We've spoken up for righteousness. And it's resulted in suffering. Later on in chapter 4 verse 12, Peter says this. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. It shouldn't shock you when suffering comes. It shouldn't be strange to you. It should be expected. I mean, when we live the way God wants us to live, we should expect 
suffering. Peter did. Peter understood that suffering was going to be a part of his life. And he's trying to help us to understand that suffering is going to be a part of our life. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul makes it clear. Without exception, there will be suffering if you desire to live a godly life. And this suffering isn't just for a handful of believers, but rather, Paul says, it's for everyone. Every single one of us who wants to live a godly life. And listen, it's impossible to be a believer without a desire to live a godly life. A godly life is the type of life that God desires for you to live. It's the way that God intends for you to live. If we have a desire to live God's way, Paul says suffering is inevitable. Jesus said it this way. He said, since they persecuted me, they will naturally persecute you. Did you get that? You see, Peter, Paul, Jesus, all tell us that if we are his follower, if we're following Jesus, then suffering is inevitable simply because we follow Jesus. I found something years ago. It's called The Fate of the Apostles. I want to read it to you. It, it tells us what the early apostles experienced because they followed Jesus. Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword at a distant city in Ethiopia. Mark expired at Alexandria after having been cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. Luke was hanged upon an olive tree in the classic land of Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil but escaped death in a miraculous manner and was afterwards banished to Patmos. Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downward. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Less was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death with a, with a fuller's club. Philip was hanged up against a pillar at Hierapolis in Phrygia. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross where he preached to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was run through the body with a lance in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was first stoned and then beheaded. Barnabas of the Gentiles was stoned to death by the Jews at Salonicia. Paul, after various tortures and persecutions, was at length beheaded at Rome by the emperor Nero. As a believer, you need to understand that you are on a collision course with suffering. Because the God of this world, Satan, and the world in which we live is opposed to the God we serve. Our suffering could come on the job, it could come at school, it could be in our neighborhood, it could even come at home, but it will come. If we seek to live a godly life, it's inevitable. When we take our Christian values and our beliefs into this world, this world is going to never understand. Now, the truth of the matter is, we haven't experienced much suffering here in America. 
Some would say that, that we've been pretty fortunate here. But it may be that we've watered down the gospel so much. It may be that we as believers have become so much like the world that the world doesn't even know we're different than them. Because the Bible makes it clear that those who seek to live a godly life will suffer persecution. And I believe with all my heart, suffering is on the horizon here in America. I want you to listen to me. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I don't know what the future holds. But I do read my Bible. And I believe it is inevitable that suffering is going to come to our land soon. It may not be this year. It may not be in the next five years. It may not be in the next 10 years. It may not even be in my lifetime or your lifetime. I don't know when this suffering is going to come, but I'm here to tell you that suffering is going to come to those who seek to live a godly life honoring Jesus Christ. It's inevitable. But notice what Peter says next, verse 14. He says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Peter says, in spite of almost certain suffering, don't worry. Don't fret. Don't be troubled. Don't get stirred up. God is on his throne. God is still in control. Your suffering does not surprise God. And God is going to use this suffering for your good and his glory. So Peter says, don't worry when the suffering comes. And then he says, don't be afraid. Now look at me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We are commanded that over and over and over in Scripture. Hundreds of times we are given that command, that admonition, do not be afraid. The truth is, either our fear is going to overcome our faith, or our faith is going to overcome our fear. Because fear and faith cannot coexist in the same space. I want you to hear that. Either your fear is going to overcome your faith. And you're going to be overcome by worry and fear and anxiety and all of those things. Or your faith is going to overcome your fear. And you're going to learn to trust God. Because faith and fear cannot coexist. But Peter doesn't just tell us, don't worry. He doesn't just say, don't be afraid. He tells us to be glad. He tells us to be, be happy. The Greek in verse 14 literally says this. It says, if you suffer for being righteous, you are blessed. Now that word blessed is a Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament. Jesus used this word when he gave us the Beatitudes, blessed are those who, and then Jesus told us all of these things. The word blessed literally means a happiness that is independent of our situation or our circumstances. 
Now, the world doesn't understand this, but our happiness doesn't come from what we have or even what happens to us. Our happiness comes from whose we are and who we are in Christ Jesus. And so we can be happy in the midst of suffering and pain. That's why the Apostle Paul said, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Back when I was a kid, I learned a song. I know some of you did too. I've got the joy, 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 joy. Where? Down in my heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. The joy isn't the result of what's outside my life. The joy is the result of what is down in my heart. It's coming from inside, not outside. Peter says this in in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He said, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. Did you get that? Be very glad, because you're about to suffer. And then he says, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian. For then the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. Be happy when you suffer. Now, that doesn't make sense. I mean, we're happy when things are going good. We're happy when everybody's healthy. We're happy when we get our promotion or we get the raise or... You know, whatever else, we're happy in these things. But yet Peter said, be happy when you're insulted and you begin to experience suffering because you love Jesus. But how? I mean, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? How? I mean, it's one thing to be told, be happy in the midst of suffering. Suffering that is the result of your faith in Christ. It's one thing to be told to be happy. It's another thing to be happy in the midst of it, right? So how can we? Well, in these two chapters, Peter gives us a number of things. But I think he gives us five very clear things that I want to give you quickly because I've already gone long. Five things that will help you, I believe, to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Here's the first thing. Worship Christ as the Lord of your life. Notice what Peter says in verse 15 of chapter 3. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Now, understand this word for worship here isn't talking about uh, corporate worship, us coming together to sing and to give and study the word and pray, you know, what we do when we have corporate worship. It's not even talking about private worship, what we do in our, our own private closet where we pray and we praise God and we thank him for all of his blessings. It's not even talking about that. The Greek word for this translated worship in this text is the Greek word hagiadzo. It's a word which literally means set apart. When something was hagiadzo, it meant that it was set apart for God alone. And so what Peter is saying here is don't just let Christ have first place in your life. Don't just let Christ have first place in your heart. Set apart your life and your heart solely and completely for him. Let him have your heart and life completely. 
Give it all to him. The truth of the matter is, it's not your life in the first place. It's his life. He gave it to you. And he could take it at any single moment. And so we surrender ourselves totally and completely to him. When we fully surrender, when we worship Christ as Lord of our life, we begin to understand it's not about us. It's about him. Here's what the Bible says. God created you for his good pleasure. Did you get that? God created you for his pleasure. God didn't create you so that he could pleasure you. God didn't create you so that he could meet your every need and answer your every request. God created you so that you would bring pleasure to him. Understand, it's not about you. It's about God. And the problem with many of us today is we have this me-centered theology where we think life is all about us. And our relationship with God is all about us. It's about us giving our life to God so that God will do all this for us. And yet we need to understand that God is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of everything. And he didn't create us because he needed us. He didn't even create us because he wanted us. He created us for his good pleasure. And we are to live our lives in such a way that we realize it's not about us. And so when we come to that point where we realize it's not about us, then whatever happens in our life is okay. We get sick, it's okay. We, we get a bad diagnosis, it's okay. We lose all of our money, it's okay. People turn against us, it's all right. Because it's not about us. It's about God and bringing honor and glory to God. We've created this consumer theology in America today where we think it's about us and it's not. Hear me. If you can get to the point in your life where you realize it's not about you, it's about God. And then you turn over everything to him. Every pocket of your life, it's his. Whatever he wants to do with you, it's his decision. Wherever he wants you to go, it's his decision. Whatever he wants you to have, it's his decision. And when you begin to understand that and you live your life fully surrendered to him, then you recognize that suffering is not the end game. Suffering is only a, a step in our journey to bring honor and glory to him. So we worship Christ as Lord of our life. Have you done that? Have you fully surrendered everything to him? Second, you got to tell others about the hope you have in Christ. You speak up in the midst of suffering. Listen to what he says in verses 15 and following. If someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, 
They will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. I mean, sometimes we suffer for doing wrong, don't we? I mean, we do stupid stuff and we suffer. But Peter says here that if we suffer for doing good, that's a good thing. And he says we live our life in a way that if we do suffer for doing good, the people who are bringing the suffering upon us will know that we know Christ. And they will want to know about the hope that we have. And we'll have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. You see, that's the end game. The end game is that you and I have the opportunity to tell anyone and everyone about Jesus and the hope we have because of Jesus. In verse 15, the latter part, he says, um, be ready to tell them about your Christian hope. Always be ready to explain it. The word there, explain it, is a Greek word, apologia. It means to give a strong defense. What that is saying is you need to know your Christian faith. You need to be able to tell other people about your Christian faith. Here's the facts. The world I grew up in is radically different than the world I'm living in today. When I was growing up, not everybody was a Christian. But I got to tell you, in my little small town here in the South, I I think everybody knew about Jesus. I think everybody could pretty much tell you what Jesus did. Not so anymore. We're, we're living now in a society in which a lot of our neighbors, a lot of the people that we go to school with, a lot of the people that we work side by side with, they don't even know who Jesus is. I mean, and so if you want to start talking to them about giving their heart and life to Jesus, they may just ask you, who is Jesus? And then they're going to ask you, why have you chosen to believe all this stuff about Jesus? It's not as simple as going through the Roman road with someone or giving someone the ABCs of salvation. You have to be able to give a strong defense of what you believe. Because if you don't, you're talking to people that have no clue. And that's what Peter is saying here. When we go through suffering, the way we handle our suffering is going to give us a platform to share the hope that we have. And our hope is not in this world. Our hope isn't because of this world. Our hope is out of this world. Our hope is because of Jesus. And so we tell people about that. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how to give a strong defense of your faith in Jesus? If you don't, I'm here to tell you you need to learn because that's the only reason you're here right now. It's the only reason. I mean, in heaven, those of us who know Jesus, we're going to worship him for all eternity. It's going to be incredible. We're going to worship him as we see the beauty of the new creation. We're going to worship him as we think about the the wonder of his mercy and grace. We're just going to worship him 24-7. But down here, down here, we have a task. And that task is to tell others about him, to invite other people to, to be a part of his family. And to do that, 
we're going to have to start thinking of ourselves as living in a post-Christian, non-Christian world. We, we've, we've got to learn how to share the gospel and share the Bible in the same way that a missionary sharing with people who have no clue who Jesus is, is sharing with them. We share the hope that we have. Third, we remember Christ's suffering. Now listen to what he says in verse 18. Christ suffered for our sins once for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. When, when he gets to verse 18, Peter moves from, from uh, talking about suffering that we face for doing good to talking about the suffering that Jesus experienced so that we could be forgiven. And Peter tells us that Jesus suffered. Some translations have that word translated died. Jesus didn't die for our sins. That's not the word here. Jesus suffered for our sins. Jesus was, was beaten without mercy with fists and rods. A crown of thorns was thrust upon Jesus' head until it cut into his skull. He was whipped over and over again until the flesh was peeling from his body and his internal organs were exposed. He was forced to carry a cross on his shoulders and on his back through the streets of Jerusalem. When he got to Golgotha, he was nailed to that cross in such a way that made every single breath difficult to take. And then he died. Jesus suffered physically. But understand, the physical suffering Jesus went through is nothing compared to the spiritual suffering. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus was on that cross, the one who never sinned, that's what it says in verse 18, he never sinned. The one who knew no sin took all our sins upon himself. All the wickedness, all the vileness, all the filth, all the hatred, all the anger, all the dirtiness, he took it all upon himself. All the pain that it causes, all the hurt that it causes, all the shame. Jesus, the sinless one, took that upon himself. But that wasn't even the worst thing. The Bible says because of that, the Father forsook the Son. When Jesus was on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father and the Son had been united together for all eternity. There was a bond that we do not understand. And yet, when he took the sin of the world upon himself, somehow, some way, I don't understand it, but somehow, some way, that bond for a moment in history was broken because Jesus took the sins of us upon himself. His was a perfect sacrifice that was a once-for-all-time sacrifice. And so when we're going through suffering, we remember what Jesus went through so that you and I don't have to suffer eternally. He paid the price for our sins. But then as we move on, we discover the fourth thing we need is we need the attitude of Christ. We need to have the attitude of Christ. In chapter 4, Peter says, So then, 
Since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourself with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires for you will be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. Now notice what Peter says here. He says we need to arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ. The word for arm here literally means to take up arms, to take up weapons. But understand, the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not like the weapons that this world uses. Our weapons are different. And one of the things that Peter says that we arm ourselves with as we go through a hostile world and face suffering is we arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ. Now, what is the attitude of Christ? Well, Philippians 2, verses 5 and following tell us what his attitude was. It was an attitude of humility. Though he was equal with God, he was God. He did not consider that equality something to to hold on to, but gave that up so that he could suffer in our place. Jesus had an attitude of humility, an attitude of submission, and we need to have that same kind of attitude. But there's something else here that I think that is vitally important that's kind of strange. Peter tells us that when we suffer for Christ, That suffering for Christ has an effect on us. It has the ability to put to death sin in our lives. It literally puts to death our desire to sin. You see, as we're going through suffering in life, suffering can be one of of two things, I believe. Our suffering is either going to cause us to turn from Christ and show that our faith was faulty to begin with, or the suffering is going to cause our faith to flourish and grow, and it's going to cause us to want to more than ever be released from sin in our life. And so suffering can be a good thing because it gives us power over sin. But there's one final thing, and then we're closing. Peter says we need to keep trusting God. He says that in chapter 4, verse 19. He says, so if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Did you hear that? He will never fail you. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? That's what he says. He will never fail you. You can trust in him. Why? Because he will never fail you. I've got to tell you. I've I've discovered through life. That that's true. When you give your heart and life to him. And you fully surrender to him. He will never fail you. Now now don't hear me wrong. I'm not putting myself up here as someone who's who's arrived. And I've got it together. And I, I can do all of these things. No, I'm a work in progress. But I'm here to tell you that I've discovered. That no matter what we go through in life. We can trust him. Because he'll never fail us. And so have you trusted him? Have you surrendered all to him? The song we sing, we raise our white flag. That's what we're doing. We're surrendering our all to him. Why? 
because he's some conqueror that's come and taken over our lives. No, we surrender all to him because we realize he's this benevolent God who loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life, and we trust him. He's never failed us before, and he will never, ever fail us. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I'm here to tell you you can trust God. You can surrender it all to him. You can let go. You can trust him. And he'll be with you. You say, but you don't know what I've done. No, I don't, but he does. You can trust him. He won't fail you. He won't let you down. You can come to him and humble yourself and And he'll walk with you through the rest of your life. So what about it? Have you given your life to him? Have you trusted him? If you haven't, I want to give you that opportunity. Would you bow your head with me? Would you close your eyes? With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here and you've never done this, given your life to Jesus, trusted him with your entire life, but you're ready to do that today, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with all your heart. Dear God, I come to you today acknowledging that I'm a sinner. I've disobeyed you. I've lived life my way. I'm sorry. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth. I believe you lived a perfect life. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave so I could be forgiven. Today, I'm trusting you to save me. Come into my life and take control. I'm surrendering it all to you. I'm yours. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.